Well, good morning. We're very glad uh, this uh, Resurrection Day that we are all here. And uh, what a beautiful morning the Lord has given us. The Christian church in the rhythm of the Christian year, and it's, it's very interesting how this has developed over the years. So when, uh, when I was a boy in, uh, in a typical but high church Baptist church, uh, there was very, very little attention to uh, any of the events of, of the week. Uh, we didn't know what Monday, Thursday was. And uh, Good Friday became a service only uh, when I was a teenager. So uh, in other words, it was just considered a part of the liturgical year, kind of separate from um, uh, Protestant evangelicals who Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists generally stayed away because of the popish uh, ceremonies thereof. And, and the reason was because Monday, Thursday, especially Good Friday and all this, were a mass in the Roman Catholic tradition. So that tells you something of how tradition gets changed over time. And uh, now the most evangelical churches have a, uh, have a Good Friday service. The difficulty in all of this, of course, is making clear to ourselves as we make clear to the world that there is no one Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. There are 52. And as the New Testament tells us, the, the Christians gather together on the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. But we are human creatures who are uh, tied to calendar, and a part of being tied to calendar is that uh, annually it is healthy for us to have certain festivals of the year that we do not turn into masses, even though in the, day, in the, in the uh, case of Christmas it still has mass in the name. But, uh, but instead we... Uh, we celebrate the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. I am wondering if it would be wise for us to close that door. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us uh, any morning much less this morning and such a spectacular morning in which to gather together to celebrate the glory of the risen Christ, to rest in the assurance of what you have done for us, redeeming us in the resurrected Christ. Father, we thank you for directing us into your word as Christ's people gather together in order to study your inerrant and fallible word. Father, may you bless this time, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are now arrived at Leviticus chapter 17. When we were together last, we were looking at Leviticus chapter 16, and in particular, we saw of the Day of Atonement, and you'll recall that one of the first things we noted is how chapter 16 begins. We're told the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron. So the instructions about this, uh, this day of atonement were given first to Moses for Moses to mediate to Aaron. This is not the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron together. Aaron is not a part of the audience in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, 
He will not receive this deliberately by the Lord's design. He, He will not receive it directly as did Moses. Moses will mediate it to him. And this is about the Day of Atonement. And as we saw, it, uh, it is about our need for atonement. And if there is any one chapter in Leviticus that just immediately takes us to our knowledge of Christ, it is Leviticus chapter 16. Not because Christ is there in the words, but because Christ is there in the atonement. And the New Testament, we'll go back and pick up explicitly from Leviticus chapter 16. But the same thing is true of Leviticus chapter 17. And the the fact that Leviticus 17 is our text for this day is because in the flow of calendar, it is so. It is a very providential text for our consideration of Christmas. No. of Easter, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone in the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord." And the priest shall shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. There shall be a statute for them throughout their generations forever. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or any of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it into the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man should be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar. To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. I often think of my early reading of Scripture as a, as a 
as a boy, and particularly as a, as a teenager. Encouraged to read the Bible, I began reading the Bible the way I read any other book. My parents had read to me from the Scripture and had me read the Bible, but I really had not considered reading it as I was encouraged in the seventh grade to read it from Genesis to Revelation. It is a revelation for a seventh grader. I uh, still remember the breakfast before school when I came down and asked my mother, Mom, what is a concubine? (laughs) And that is when, at that age, a boy gets that very strange look from his mother's face, and she simply says, you may talk to your father about it when he gets home from work. Well, good grief, I'm reading the Bible. Uh, This is uh, the Bible. What in the world have I walked into here? And, of course, then I got to other things. And, you know, so much of it I did not understand. But this is one of those passages in which, as you follow in sequence, you can think, oh, I understand this. And then you get goat demons. Goat demons. Leviticus 17 begins like Leviticus 16. The Lord speaks to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them. So it's interesting, again, that Aaron is not included in the hearing of this. This is delivered directly to Moses, and Moses is to deliver this not only to Aaron and to his sons through the priesthood, but to all. Because this, unlike the previous chapter, is not really about the priesthood. This is about blood. This is right into the, the heart of the gospel. We recognize when we're talking about blood atonement. Here it is. And here it is explained. And it's explained both positively and negatively because Israel is told here what it must do. And of course, this isn't the first reference to the offerings, the peace offering or the, or, or, or the sacrifice for atonement. No, that, that's been covered before. That's what makes this a little unusual. And that's why until we get to a certain point in Leviticus chapter 17, this appears to be almost contradictory. That is to say, as you think about the first, say, 16 chapters of Leviticus, we've had all kinds of instructions about sacrifice, and they don't appear to be these particular instructions. And it's because these particular instructions are more about what one must not do. And that's why this is addressed not only to the priesthood, but to all the people. And once again, we see that as they are getting ready to go into the land of promise, and this is where the law will be lived out in full. That's where they will not be in a tent of meeting, but instead they will be you know, eventually in a temple for the sacrifices. But, but this is where we understand things can go horribly awry. Things can go horribly awry. And so there are really two different levels in this passage of Leviticus chapter 17. One of them has to do with what in the world was going on that Israel's being told it must not do. And then, how does this relate to the holiness of God's people in an ongoing way? Now, using the word holiness we recognize there is a huge turn in the book of Leviticus, and we have just turned with with chapter 16. The remainder of this book will be about the holiness that is required of God's people, the very people who are given the tabernacle, the people who are given the law, the people who are given the covenant, the people who are given these 
sweet words of the law. Well, that's a bit, it's a bit bizarre. Even as the Lord spoke to Moses and told him to speak to Aaron and his sons and all to the, to the sons of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Very interesting Hebrew there. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. We don't have, we don't have words in English at times that appear as direct as words in, in other languages. At least in let's take a few more words, few less than the French, but a few more than others. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. And then we're told about someone who, who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and doesn't bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. And then we're, said, blood guilt, we're told blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Okay, so if this is about food, this doesn't make sense. If, if this is about slaughter in a domestic food context, this does not make sense. This is bizarre. Where's the guilt? Why guilt? You, you can't eat an animal without shedding its blood. So how is that now such an issue? Is, is it the what? Is it the where? Look at the where. This is true whether you kill the animal inside the camp or outside the camp. Well, that appears to be unexpected because there's such a clear distinction between inside the camp and outside the camp. So that extends to it virtually being a different set of rules outside the camp in terms of the holiness rituals and the cleansings. You don't cleanse outside the camp. That's why it's outside the camp. That's why you take your, your refuse uh, outside the camp. That's why scandal is taken outside the camp. That's why, uh, you know, someone who's expelled from, from the people has to be sent outside the camp. But now we're told that whether this takes place inside the camp or outside the camp, iniquity, that is blood, sin, guilt, uh, remains upon him. Well, well Why? Why? What, what, what is going on here? We're told he's to be actually not just uh, recognized as having blood guilt imputed to him, but he, he is to be cut off from among his people. And then in verse 5, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord. So now all of a sudden we recognize, oh, there must be some sacrifices taking place hidden. This is the realm of the occult. And one of the important things for us to recognize is that as you look through human history, the emergence of the occult is nearly universal. There is some system or there are multiple systems of occultic fascination in just about every culture. And what is interesting is how they are united, what, what elements and features they bear in common. The word occult itself points to the fact that these things are done in secret. So you'll notice that, again, that this is not something that's done in the open. These are sacrifices that are, that are done hidden away in, in, in a, a secret ceremony. There's more we find out in subsequent verses. 
What we're told is that if there is an appropriate sacrifice, it's done in the open field, it's brought to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, sacrificed as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. So this is all done to the Lord. That's all kosher. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now just notice the sequence. He's going to throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he's going to burn the fat. We've seen this already so early in Leviticus for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then verse 7, and this one just blasts at us. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after which they whore. This will be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Well, okay, now we got whoring after goat demons. Happy Easter. <laughs> this is the, and, and you said that it was providential that we're in this passage on the Sunday in the church year in which we're celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What in the world have goat demons to do with Jesus? Well, goat demons were to have nothing to do with God's people. God's people were to have nothing to do with goat demons. What in the world is a goat demon? Well, in one sense, it's a goat, which are demonic. Rarely do you have someone who says, oh yes, I received that injury from a mad lamb. (laughs) But there are people who uh, will tell you, you've got to keep a respectful distance from that goat. Male goats in particular uh, have a couple of features that draw attention to themselves, especially if you see the male goat from behind. they're very visible. The goat is a, a rambunctious creature that often turns vehement. So a male goat is seen as exaggerated masculinity. Like the bull, the bull looks at the goat and goes, dude, you're wound up. Uh, the male goat is a dangerous creature. And malevolent. Just look at the. If, I have not spent a lot of time around goats. I can just tell you. But when I was ten, I was attacked by a male goat, and I still remember it because he knocked me flat. But the weird thing about goats is that they even have an evil look on their face. And you look at a lamb, and you just want to say, "Oh, that's a lamb." Uh, you look at a goat, and the goat looks at you, going, "One of us is going to survive this planet, buddy. Not two of us." It's just a strange, strange... Baby goats are cute. Adult male goats, not so much. And then they have horns. If you are going to put together an occultic system, occultic systems are based on, as is most idolatry, by the way, occultic systems are based upon taking something generally from the natural world and exaggerating it and personifying it and worshiping it. So you exaggerate it, you personify it, and you worship it. So that's one of the reasons why, uh, as you look at, say, uh, fertility gods and goddesses, idols and, and, uh, and art, especially from Canaan, just to take Canaan, you don't have to be told what this idol's about. Uh, they are the idols of fertility and the idols of fecundity. And uh, again, very, very graphic. 
But another part of the occult, and this is true just about anywhere, it's a, it's a part of what makes the occult occultic, is that there are rites and rituals. Now, at least in most situations, the occult is a mirror image to say biblical Christianity in that it celebrates what what God's covenant with Israel and what scriptural Christianity sees as most evil. That would include unrestrained sexuality. It would include rites and rituals that involve sexual acts. And uh, it would involve certain forms of the embrace of evil. In, in many of the occultic uh, circles, if, if you have something like a sacrifice of a goat, rather than it being substitutionary in the sense that the sins of the people are understood to be imputed to the goat, no, it is rather so that there may be such an act as the drinking of the goat's blood in order to receive its spirit, including its virility. Sometimes we know, because of ample evidence from Canaan, just to take one culture for example, that this led to orgiastic sexual rituals that involved receiving the blood of this uh, sacrificed goat in order that its erotic wildness uh, may be received within the individual. Similar kinds of rituals for women and uh, cultic prostitution, uh, especially to the Asherah, the the entire category of uh, female idols. And this was done under the evergreen tree because the evergreen tree was seen as a sign of perpetual life. And uh, that's why Israel's told... You'll notice passages which they're told they cannot do what others do under the evergreen trees, which, uh, oddly enough, misread, led some Puritans to believe we should not have Christmas trees in our home. That is not what the text is about, dear Puritan friend. This is graphic, and here we are, and again, you say, what in the world are you talking about? by saying that it is God's providence that we're in this even as it aligns with the festival of the resurrection. Well, you shall see. Beginning in verse 8, and you shall say to them, that's to the people, all the men of Israel, all the people of Israel, anyone in the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Why? Because that man is performing a sacrifice to someone other than the God of Israel, someone other than the one true and living God, someone other than the God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt in Exodus. This, this would be an act of consummate idolatrous heresy, and that's why they would be cut off from their people. 
So you'll notice here that the big issue as chapter 17 begins is when it's talking about a sacrifice and it's talking about the, 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 the slaughter of an animal. It's not about a slaughter of an animal for eat. It is not about the slaughter of an animal for the normal sacrificial system. And, and there's a principle made here. It, it, it's repeated. It's abundantly clear. If it is a legitimate sacrifice, then it is brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. It is given to the priest and it is unto the Lord. If those three criteria are not met, it is an idolatrous, illegitimate sacrifice, and the one who does it should be cut off from his people because it is not just that it's unlicensed and unqualified, it is that it is almost assuredly tied to a form of idolatry. And probably, quite possibly, the most grotesque form of idolatry. By the way, the face of a demonic goat is still an occultic sign, even indicating where occultic meetings take place. But there was something else about the early verses here in chapter 17. And and it's not like we haven't confronted, even in Leviticus, attention to blood before. There's the blood that's supposed to be, uh, you know, drained from the animal and the blood that's supposed to be sprinkled on the, uh, on the altar. And then on that one day, sprinkled on the mercy seat uh, inside the, the most holy place, the holy of holies. But now we have instructions against eating blood. We read them together beginning in verse 10 and following. It it basically just says, not only for the people of Israel, but for the sojourners also who are among them, God says himself, and notice this, it's an unusual construction. I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So God says, I'm going to go look at him. You eat blood, I'm I'm, I'm going to cast my face against you. I'm, I'm I'm, I'm going to act as if you are not. That's a very, very severe indication of the Lord's judgment. And, and, uh, and he's been cut off from his people. And you say, well, what is this? He, he eats blood. Verse 11 turns out to be, as is the case elsewhere in the book of Leviticus, it turns out to be a theme statement that is necessary for our understanding of everything that will follow in Scripture. And you say, well, I didn't realize there were verses like that in Leviticus. Where there are, and here is one. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is the blood. It's uh, probably best translated, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. As you contrast, say, the Revised Standard Version or the the King James Version, the ESV, I think, renders it best. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. So God says, by the way, this, is, this blood is not incidental. The blood is central. It, it, is, it is the life that is in the blood, and thus atonement is made for the sins of the people in the sacrifice on the altar precisely because the blood represents life. The blood is life. Life is in the blood. Therefore, I receive it as atonement. And and by the same score, therefore, you are not to eat it. Now, one of those interesting things here is that there is virtually no record of any other people in the ancient Near East given any similar kind of instruction. It's much like what we just saw with the food instruction about uh, how, they, how they were to eat. And, uh, and, and we saw that there's no similar instruction. Certainly, there's no similar instruction 
uh, on an entire category of animal, which is a protein source, after all, that would include uh, uh, pork. And yet, among many detailed dietary instructions, the children of Israel told you may not eat pork. Here, they may not eat blood. Now, just, let's just pause for a moment. Let's just think for a moment. Uh, how did they know that the life is in the blood? How did they know? Well, simple observation. Simple observation uh, by asking what is common uh, to creatures. Uh, don't think so much about bugs. But think about creatures, animals, uh, mammals in particular. What is common to them? Blood. What is also common to them? The blood runs out, the animal dies. What is also common to them is the observation that came by just the normal domestic uh, agriculture and also the sacrificial system. Uh, the, the loss of the blood is the death of the animal. And it's also true just in terms of human injury. It's, it, it's also true that blood, when it comes out of the body, oxygenated blood, is bright, bright red. It remains red, but not so bright as the oxygen is depleted from the blood. And as it's outside the body, it turns darker. It also coagulates. You know this from detective shows on television. You can date death by a sample of the blood. You can determine how long blood has been outside of the body and all kinds of properties of the blood that, of course, lead to other things as well. This is, this is ancient Israel wandering in the wilderness. There is no coroner on the scene. There's no pathologist. But there is common observation that the, the life is in the blood. Now, that leads to something else. That leads to two things. Number one, in the biblical worldview, it leads to a respect for the blood because it is how God has given life. It is, it is so essential to life. The blood leaves the animal, the animal dies. And they didn't understand everything about the circulatory system or even the heart, but they did know that when the blood stops circulating, the person dies. One of the signs of death is that there is no longer circulation of blood. If the blood leaves the body, the body dies. Now, what does that lead you to? It can lead you to a reverence to the Creator, or it can lead you directly into an occultic direction. In which case you basically worship the blood or you make a sacrament out of the blood. Okay, let's continue. Therefore I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Then very quickly we saw the paragraph. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth for the life of every creature is in its blood and its blood is its life therefore i've said to the people of israel you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is in its blood whoever eats it shall be cut off so th this first example is just will you say normal domestic use of meat hunting and and so what do you do the most important thing is to recognize you don't eat the blood you drain the blood out of the animal outside the camp. So you do not even bring the animal's blood inside the camp. If you, if you kill something to eat, that's legitimate. There's no, there's no censure against that. It's sanctioned. 
but, uh, but you slaughter the animal outside the camp. Its blood is dealt with respectfully. That's a, that's a part of the ritual here. It's poured into the ground, and, and, and it's covered. So it's just to, to recognize that uh, it, it is important. Life is in the blood. God gave life, and now that life has been taken, and it's been taken legitimately in order that someone may eat. But the blood is not to be brought inside the camp, and the person is not to eat the blood. That's for something killed by hunting. The next example is basically one that an animal that is found already dead. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. No, no, okay, so what happens here? Why, why if, uh, if an animal is killed, uh, slaughtered, or hunted, why then is the blood drained and, and there's no blood guilt? You'll notice they're not told they have to wash. There's no blood guilt there at all. So long as the blood is dealt with respectfully, is, is taken care of outside the camp and it's buried. Well, why if you come across a dead animal, and by the way, this is something I've just never done one time in my life. I've never stopped and said, roadkill. Uh, it's, it's never happened. Uh, but, you know, if you're hungry enough, maybe, maybe that would happen. But why, what is the problem? Perhaps you've imagined it already. The problem is that an animal that has been dead for any length of time cannot be drained of its blood. Only fresh killed can be drained of blood. So that means there is coagulated blood. Yes, happy Easter. There is coagulated blood in the animal's flesh. Eating it makes you unclean, period. So there you have it. That's what that last portion of chapter 17 means. It means he has to wash and bathe his flesh and go through the ritual of cleaning as if he has been in the illegitimate contact with blood. Now, this is not goat demon worship. This is just, this is eating a carcass because the blood can't be drained. Leviticus 17, it's a bloody chapter, it's bizarre. Verse 11 tells us that it's, it's life that's in the blood. That's, that's the important issue. That's why blood is dealt with. And, and the, the reality of the power of blood is going to go in some direction. In the occult, it goes into the direction of sensuality and the worship of the blood spirit. Even the ritual of, of, of imbibing and eating and drinking blood. Not for God's people. No. So this whole passage is, in this turn within the book of Leviticus, as we're looking at the holiness of God's people, the holiness of God's worship, and the holiness of God's nation. So what do we do with this? Let's look at Acts chapter 15, verse 29. So the Jerusalem Council, just for the sake of time, you'll recall this is the 
council of the early church, the apostles gathered together to know how we are to relate to Gentile believers. Uh, and of course, that's how the Jewish believers are to relate to Gentile believers. Most of us in this room are the Gentile believers. Notice the, uh, the council's letter to the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barnabas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone up from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent... Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves in these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, the Jerusalem Council is just so important because this is where the, the early church came together under the Holy Spirit. The apostles came together, and the big question was, how do we understand the relationship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers? And, and you'll notice that they start out by saying, we want to impose none of the ceremonial, uh, uh, none of the, uh, of the law, uh, kosher law, the dietary law. We want to impose none of that upon the Gentile believers. And of course, by this time, you also have, you know, Peter's vision, and so, including eating pork, so as revolutionary as that is. What, what, in other words, what's binding upon Gentile Christians? Well, you'll notice it's moral, and it relates to abstaining also from blood, from eating blood. So the one thing, the, the one singular part of the dietary law, did you notice this? How do you think about this? The one part of the dietary law given to Israel, which is unique, known to no other ancient people, the one thing that continues is to abstain from eating blood. Now, that is generally read as an accommodation to the Jewish believers because it was so unbelievably, unspeakably abhorrent that they could get over pork, but they could never get over blood. But I think that's a serious under-reading of the text. Because I think rather we should see this as the Holy Spirit guiding the early church to understand this is a binding issue. Because respect for the blood is something that is to mark God's people. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And you notice how this is tied not so much to reference to a goat demon... But it is very much uh, tied to abstaining from evil, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will, will do well. Farewell. Well, that's a, that's a reference to the early church. But how early did this come in Israel's experience? Well, just go back to Genesis chapter 9. It's, of course, the Noahic covenant. This is where Israel's given permission to eat meat. For the sake of time, we'll just look at verses 3 and following. Every moving thing that 
lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So what we saw in in Leviticus 17 verse 11, that the life is in the blood, we were already told that in Genesis chapter 9. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. This leads to what is even today Jewish ritual slaughter, which is different than, uh, than, than slaughter elsewhere. The animal has to, be, has to be bled out such that there is no more blood coming out of the animal. And still you say, well, you cut the piece of meat and there is some blood. Yes, but not like it would be had it not been bled and drained. So there, there's, there's going to be some fluid still left uh, in the steak. But that's very different than how it would have been with coagulated blood as a part of the, uh, uh, of the cut itself. Throughout much of the rest of the world, it would be considered insane to let that go. In uh, a place like uh, Germany, by the way, and in uh, some other places, you'll even have blood sausages. That is to say, they are sausages in which coagulated blood is a considerable portion of the, uh, of the sausage mix itself. And you could you know, go to just about any grocery store, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and find those blood sausages, whether you recognize that's what it is or not. How in the world is this given such theological significance? Well, in order to understand this better, let's look to Hebrews. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, particularly chapters 9 and 10. Looking at Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So you'll notice there's a direct line from the blood of the sacrificed animal to the blood of Christ. But the blood of Christ atones for sin. For we were told also in the book of Hebrews that the the blood of goats and calves and ox, they they will not lead to the remission of sins. Atonement. Atonement is accomplished only through the blood of the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, that's that's on the Day of Atonement, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I will come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, the 40th Psalm. When he said the above, you neither desired nor you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. So the old sacrificial system is abolished to be followed by a second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So now the substitutionary sacrifice is the body of Christ and his shed blood. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, all this just tells us why Leviticus 17 all of a sudden looms before us as we think about the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just want to show you some references to make all this clear. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. With everything we've just talked about, I want you to note how absolutely shocking this is. And yet you hear these verses all the time and you are not shocked. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I will tell you that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you understand how shocking it is? I mean, do you, how, how, in, how in one hour can we look at Leviticus 17, and now we're looking at Matthew 26, and we're told, drink no blood, drink no blood, drink no blood, drink no blood. This is my blood. First of all, it's not his blood. Now, it's the fruit of the vine. It is not his blood. It is to remind us of his blood. It is to point us to his blood. But it is not a violation of the law. This is one of the reasons why the reformers pointed out that the mass and the claim of transubstantiation of the Roman Catholic Church is not just a theological error, it is a reversion of the biblical logic. It would have the mass do exactly what God said he would not have in a sacrifice. We see it in the Lord's Supper. Look at Romans Chapter 3, verse 25. 
It's easier just to start at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. That's the entire sacrificial system, all the animals, all the oxen, all the goats, all the lambs. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just a couple chapters over, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just one chapter previous, look at verse 7. Chapter 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There's so much for us to consider here, but let's just realize that in God's providence, we arrived at Leviticus chapter 17, which has this bizarre warnings about goat demons and drinking blood. And yet all of this takes us because... The life is in the blood. All this takes us to our desperate need for atonement. And that atonement cannot come even by the sacrificial system of goats and oxen and all the rest. It can come only by the blood of Christ. But it does come by the blood of Christ. But if Christ had died on the cross and shed his blood as our substitute for our justification and for our salvation and for our redemption, and had he not been raised from the dead, the sacrifice would be an intention, not an accomplishment. That is why in the very same book there as we read Romans and also as we look through the writings of the Apostle Paul, this logic in the New Testament will be played out through other New Testament writings as well when we'll be told that Christ died for our justification, but he was also raised for our justification. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that God raised him from the dead according to the scriptures therefore we are saved so eat no blood cling to the blood of Jesus and as we come together for this Lord's day and are about to hear the message from God's word and we're about to sing the great songs of the faith let's just remember we can only do so because of the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins by the Christ who was crucified in our place and raised to life by the Father. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us. Thank you for giving us Leviticus 17 for this morning. Father, we pray that we would miss nothing in your word, but that even as we sleep, your word will continue to grow in our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.